Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. Last week, a devastating explosion wrecked much of Beirut. Amidst the wreckage of the city, there's been despair, fear, and anger about incompetence and corruption among the country's ruling elite. This week, we're looking at what that means for the future of Lebanon. My guest is Chloe Cornish, the FT's Middle East correspondent, who's based in Beirut. The explosion in Lebanon's capital city on August the 4th was so powerful that some mistook it for an aerial bombardment or even a nuclear attack. It seems to have been caused by the detonation of 2,750 tonnes of highly flammable ammonium nitrate stored for years without regard to safety in Beirut's port. The official death toll has risen to 171 and some 300,000 people have been left homeless. In its aftermath, outraged Lebanese took to the streets to demonstrate against the government. Then, on August the 10th, the Lebanese government resigned. But nobody seems to believe that a mere change of administration will be enough to fix Lebanon's deep-seated political and economic problems. The country's long been at the mercy of its powerful foreign neighbours. I first visited Lebanon as a young journalist in 1982, during the Israeli invasion. The situation was dangerous and chaotic. The Israelis were not the only foreign forces inside the country. Syria had also invaded Lebanon in 1976, and its forces only fully withdrew in 2005. Meanwhile, Hezbollah, the Iranian-backed militia, is today arguably the most powerful military and political force in Lebanon. All of these foreign forces have played into Lebanon's own internal divisions. The country's civil war lasted from 1975 to 1990, and many trace the current political mess to the power-sharing agreement that ended the civil war. It divided political power along sectarian lines. For example, the executive powers, Speaker of the Parliament, President and Prime Minister, are divided between Sunni Muslims, Shia Muslims and Christians. Some now argue that politics structured on sectarian lines has led to a patronage system and a corrupt and unresponsive government. Long before the explosion, the Lebanese economy was in freefall. The currency, the Lebanese pound, had lost 80% of its value since last October. On a flying visit to Lebanon after the explosion, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, called for political reform. Il faut rebâtir la confiance et l'espoir. Elle ne se décrète pas, elle ne se reconquiert pas du jour au lendemain, mais elle suppose. So, is there any hope of political and economic change in Lebanon? That was the question I discussed with Chloe Cornish. 
But first, I asked her about what she's seeing on the ground. I live a few miles south from the blast site, so um, just to give you a sense of how huge the scale is, you know, I was a good mile away and still the back window of my apartment blew out. You know, a lot of my friends are injured, but um, they are alive. <laughs> um, and and really, in th- when you look at the blast and you just think the, the power of, of that explosion, you do feel lucky to be alive. And so many people have had these lucky escapes, you know, or they just happened to be in the bathroom or they'd managed to arrive at the place just before the blast, you know, all of these tiny mini escapes and, and, and you feel just really lucky um, to be okay, really, and, and to have all of your, all of your loved ones um, maybe a little bit dented, a bit battered, but um, more or less okay. And I mean, Beirut's a city that's been through so much and yet reading about it and reading about people's reactions to it, there does seem to be a sense that you know, even in a city as resilient as this, a kind of fear that this is almost a kind of terminal blow. It's interesting, this word resilience has become a really hotly debated topic, actually, in in some ways. A lot of people want to tout the kind of resilience of Lebanon, um, but many are saying, actually, enough with this. Like, why do we always have to be so resilient? Why are we always surviving our governments? Why are we always surviving these people in power? You know, enough. We, we, We shouldn't be resilient anymore. We should be angry and we should be demanding something different, a complete overhaul of this political system that's brought us to this horrific tragedy. And that's really how a lot of people see it. Um, You're you're right, like, Beirut has lived through so much. I mean, before uh, this disaster, you would walk around the city and still see the scars of the Civil War, um, which ended in 1990. But then, of course, there was the uh, Israeli bombing in 2006, which, um, you know, levelled bits of South Beirut which wasn't affected by this disaster. But when everyone heard the explosion or felt the explosion or or had something fall on them or fly towards them, uh, mines were transported straight back in a lot of cases to those wars, you know, the Israeli bombing, etc. Most, uh, I would say, a lot of the Lebanese people that you chat to um, recollected that straight away. You know, they thought, that's it, we're at war with Israel or Israel's at war with us. Just all these memories just suddenly surged surged into everyone's consciousness. And I think that's also sharpened this idea that why should, uh, why should people here constantly be bearing the brunt of, of violence, either by, you know, intentional or by neglect, corruption. Uh, and resilience is really strained right now, you know. Yes, it's amazing how, how quickly people have managed to clean the streets in the absence of, of, of almost any government support. But there's just this sense like, why should we be resilient anymore? Why do we have to keep pushing up with this? And there has been this now, the demonstrations, the backlash, and um, the government has just fallen as we speak. But is there any real hope behind the anger that something better in terms of governance could emerge? Or do the problems just seem too intractable? It's really mixed because most people blame this entrenched political class who emerged out of the civil war as the sort of collective survivors, like survival of the fittest kind of thing. So the warlords who represented different sectarian groups um, who made it out. And they then, from 1990, effectively shared power between them. And they also shared the spoils of running a country. And that class has bought votes. They've stocked the civil service with 
people who are loyal to them because that's another way of buying loyalty. And so these people are very powerful and their hold on power is very, very strong. And there's a real, real worry that they might never be able to get rid of them. Now, there's been in the past sort of green shoots, as it were, of new political movements emerging from the grassroots. People have tried to form political parties based not on sectarian identity or affiliation, but, you know, on a more of a policy platform. But it's always been really hard for them to gain traction because they're just, they don't have the financial resources and they don't have that hold on state apparatuses that the political classes that they're trying to combat do. So it's a really big struggle. And there's one really true resilient class, a writer called Lena Munza, who's um, based in Beirut, who's Lebanese, has, has pointed out, is the political class itself. They're the most resilient of all, really. And displacing them is going to be incredibly hard. But uh, so in a sense, are you saying that the, the current political mess, and everyone seems to agree that it is a mess, is a product of the effort to solve the last terrible problem, which was the civil war and the structure that that bequeathed And is there a fear that, okay, that if you've got rid of the kind of spoil system, you might then have a further social breakdown and and people went back to fighting? It depends who you talk to, right? Like, I think a lot of people who didn't live through the Civil War, which was a whole 30 years ago now, let's not forget, like, that ended in 1990. But because these people needed to keep hold of power, because they were were enriching themselves and they were, um, they needed to keep those kind of tensions alive. And you see a similar thing in Iraq, actually. Um, Iraq has a similar sort of quota system within its government um, for dividing up power between sects to ensure that minority groups get some sort of representation and that one sect doesn't gain overall power over everyone else. But yeah, in in both countries, actually, this has really proved to embed kleptocracy and cronyism and all sorts of things because these people are kind of given carte blanche, right, to, to do what they like. Because, you know, oh, we're representing the sect. Oh, you know, we're, we're doing the right thing for our community, whatever. But people are really questioning that, you know, they're saying, why, why does the country look like this? You know, this, this can't work as a political system. So I would say that there's not necessarily, if those people suddenly like disappeared tomorrow, you might actually see a lot of the sectarian tensions dissolve because they have been the instigators of a lot of those. And it would be, I think, insulting really to say to the Lebanese population, like, you're not capable of doing this without your sectarian leaders. I think that a lot of people are saying, like, why has the international community basically enabled these people to to rule us for this long because it represented stability? Yeah. One of the most uh, striking things to happen after the explosion was the arrival of President Macron, his demand for reform. I mean, it was very dramatic. But is there, is there really a possibility of France playing a significant role in the reconstruction of, of Lebanon? And who were the other outside players? I mean, presumably Iran, Syria would also have a, a few things to say about that. Yeah, Lebanon has always been this sort of um, an arena for regional rivalries to play out because there's been a lot of support, sort of proxy groups almost, as it were, from, from different regional players. So to take France first, like France has this very long history with Lebanon because it had a, a mandate to rule Lebanon. Um, and there's a lot of traces of French rule. So here, like there are a lot of people are Francophone. Um, you know, we don't say shukran, which is the, the thank you in Arabic in quite a lot of parts of Beirut, for example, we say merci. Um, you do feel that history. I think... <laughs> 
The Macron thing, you know, him like coming in here and sort of uh, a lot of jokes about him being a disaster tourist or whatever. But he he's clearly understood the PR problem that the Lebanese authorities have, and he's played up to it. To be honest, um, when he was visiting people in the street, and he was urged by people who were volunteering to clean up the some of the devastated streets. They, they urged him not to direct aid to the Lebanese government because they feared it was too corrupt to distribute it properly. And he, you know, assured them, well, we won't put aid in corrupt hands. Iran, you mentioned, Iran's key involvement uh, in Lebanon is through its uh, sort of scion, Hezbollah. Hezbollah is a political party, um, but it's also a militia, and it's designated as a terrorist group by the US, the UK, Germany, and some other countries. Uh, any Hezbollah official will tell you that they are handsomely supported by Iran. Other regional players, like Saudi Arabia, um, Saudi Arabia had a long relationship with the Hariri family, the political dynasty in Lebanon. Rafiq Hariri, who was assassinated in 2005, he was post-Civil War Prime Minister of Lebanon. His son, Saad Hariri, uh, was the Prime Minister of Lebanon until last, late October. He resigned also in the face of mass protests, more or less in the same way that uh, Hassan Diab has resigned. Um, but that relationship has been on the rocks, the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the Hariri family because of perception that under Saad Hariri's watch, uh, Hezbollah was allowed to gain too much power and Iran had too much influence. Hezbollah is really the most powerful, you know, Hez- Hezbollah and its ally, um, Amel, they're really the most powerful political force within parliament. And they were seen as the major key backers of uh, the government that just resigned. That's the main the sort of main regional players. Syria, of course, is next door to Lebanon and the two countries are entwined uh, almost inextricably through uh, the dollar market. Uh, As Syria's civil war has gone on and sanctions have clamped down on Syria, it's been increasingly difficult for them to get hard currency there and a lot of the hard currency that comes into Syria comes from uh, Lebanon. But it's obviously its power has diminished a great deal and and, uh, it's not as as significant a player, I would say, as, as, as Iran. So, I mean, you paint this incredibly complex picture, all these outside players, the mess on the ground, physical mess, political mess. We haven't even got to the economics, and uh, but we can take it as read that it's a very dire situation. So just to round up, Chloe, I mean, as, as you look ahead for the next uh, month or so, do you see a process of gradual reconstruction or is this a crisis that is, is actually going to get worse in the immediate uh, future over the next month or so? It's difficult to say because there's a lot of different factors that might play into this. So firstly, the government's resigned, but it's going to stay on as a caretaker government. There'll be all the sort of political horse trading that usually goes on behind the scenes, I imagine, uh, unless they're able to to call fresh elections. But um, as a caretaker government, they don't actually have the power to call fresh elections. So it's parliament that would have to decide that. So we will see whether or not MPs are, are willing, you know, whether these turkeys are, are uh, up for voting for Christmas, as it were. So that's the sort of political malaise. Um, in terms of the emergency situation in, in Lebanon, um, of course, the, the injury, you know, people are still suffering injuries um, and we have a huge spike in coronavirus cases. So let's not forget about the pandemic that's also ongoing. You know, it's going to factor in, I think, in a very, very major way in the, the coming months and weeks, unfortunately. 
The coronavirus pandemic had already dealt another blow to the economy that was in free fall. Free fall is the government's words. And people were getting increasingly getting poorer. Imports were down 50% already year on year um, in terms of the amount of goods that were just being bought and brought into Lebanon. But of that, the amount of wheat that is being brought in, so that's the ingredient which makes the staple food of the poorest in Lebanon, which is bread, um, that had gone up, I was told, by the guy who runs the national flour mills in, in the north of the country. He said, he told me that the demand for wheat had gone up by 15 to 20%. I just think that's a really stark indication of just how this economy is changing, right? So you've gone from... Uh, really looking like a proper, you know, lower middle income country to, to not looking like that at all. The UN has said it's worried that food prices will rise even further and there's been runaway inflation already because of the crash of the local currency um, and dollar shortage. So, you know, I don't see things getting a lot better, to be honest, Gideon, like, um, sadly, uh, and civil rights groups and and people who might be thinking, oh, maybe this is our chance to finally get elected, um, you know, like nascent political parties and so on, they're going to have to be scrambling to get something together, right? Like, that's that's the main hope that these folks would have of, uh, of wresting some of the power away from from these uh, elites that people have been, been rising up against in the street. But, yeah, this all, I'm afraid it all remains to be seen, really. Um, there's a sort of Lebanese soothsayer called Michel Hayek, who goes on TV and gives these these, these catastrophic predictions. He's, he's literally like an, an oracle. <laughs> he's a fortune teller. Um, and uh, unfortunately, Michelle Hayek has not had very good predictions about the, the coming months. So uh, I think his guess is as good as mine at the moment, but it doesn't look good, uh, sadly, for this country. Chloe, thank you very, very much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks very much. That was Chloe Cornish in Beirut, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Please join us again next week. You can find us in all the usual podcast apps. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com AI for people to learn more. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.